this section in 1 Thessalonians. If you're not there already, I encourage you to take your Bible and turn there to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're in this section where Paul is instructing the readers, the listeners, the church in Thessalonica, how to live lives in order to please God. Live lives that are pleasing to God. And he tackles some of, uh, some of the kind of the major life issues, starting with sexuality, which we covered last week. This morning we're looking at what it means to live life pleasing to God with regard to our work. And then we'll transition into talking about how to please God and the way we think about and interact with and experience death. So this morning, work, and we are in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's ask for the Lord's help in understanding and applying this passage. Holy Father, thank you for these words, your words that you have given and trusted to us. And I pray that you help us to understand them and and. I just recognize that this is not a hard passage at all to understand. I don't think there's one word in there that's difficult or hard to make sense of. And so, even beyond understanding these verses, I pray you'd help us to embody them, to apply these things to our lives and to to live it out, to engage in work in such a way that it brings glory to your great name and joy to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we noticed last week, and we'll see it again today, one of the things that this section highlights is just how countercultural Christianity is by design. Paul went out of his way to highlight the fact that the Thessalonians should stand out from their culture. They should not blend in. They should not look like the rest of their culture when it came to their sexual ethics, and he's no less radically countercultural when it comes to their attitudes about work. He's saying you should not blend in when it comes to the way that you engage work, but you should stand out as obviously different from the rest of your culture. He makes it clear in this passage that work is good. Work is good, especially, he he goes out of his way to highlight manual labor, work with your own hands is good. Providing for your own needs with your own income is good. Now, me saying that, that doesn't necessarily feel countercultural in our context. That's because in our modern Western culture, work is valued, and that's good. In our culture, having a good work ethic is always viewed as a good thing. I've never heard that used in a negative way. 
If you have a good work ethic, that's good. If anything, we have a tendency to work too much, not too little in our culture. That's true in our culture. It's also true here at Ebenezer. This is a church full of people who value hard work and who work hard. That is a fact. So it's worth taking a moment just to recognize that this value of hard work that we have in our church and in our culture, that is not a value that was shared by the citizens of the first century Roman Empire. They thought that work was degrading. And they thought especially manual labor, work with your hands, hard work, was degrading and ought to be avoided at all costs. It ought to be delegated and offloaded. It was Aristotle who famously said that leisure is the goal of all human behavior and the end toward which all actions should be directed. It was leisure. Aristotle said that leisure is the greatest good. Everything we should do should, is, should be to position ourselves to have maximum leisure. And any unpleasant task, such as manual labor, whether that's in the house, cooking in the house, or out in the field, or, or building, or, or, or whatever, manual labor ought to be outsourced to slaves or servants so that the citizens of the Roman Empire can devote themselves to the pursuit of leisure and pleasure. That was the thinking. That was the value in the day. That's important background information. First of all, because that's different than our culture. We don't think that way. But it's important for us to know that Paul is taking a biblical stand against that kind of cultural thinking. Apparently, the cultural aversion to honest work had crept into this young church as well. We don't, we don't exactly know why. Probably some people in the church were just influenced by their culture, kind of absorbed that way of thinking about work. But some commentators also think that part of the problem was a theological misunderstanding. It's possible that some of the early Christians took the view that since Jesus is coming back, probably soon we're expecting, and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, therefore, there's no real point to working while we're here on earth. There's no real point to doing much of anything while we're here on earth, since all this world is going to pass away anyways. That's a mistake. That's a theological error that Paul might be addressing here. It's also possible that some of the early Christians simply figured out that other members of the church are so generous, they're so willing to give of their own resources in order to provide for everyone's needs, that they don't really need to work or provide for their own needs. So into this situation, Paul speaks a powerful countercultural message about the value and the dignity and the blessing of hard work, the goodness of hard work. The consistent message throughout the Bible is that work is good, hard work honors the Lord, and laziness or slothfulness is a sinful character flaw. The biblical message about work begins right at the beginning, at the time of creation. Before the fall, God makes it clear that he values work and he expects the creatures that he has created in his image to engage in meaningful work, which makes sense since God himself engaged in the work of creation and then he rested from that work on the seventh day and he made us in his image to reflect that. 
So in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and every living thing that moves upon the earth. Our being created in God's image leads directly to our privilege and our duty to subdue the earth, to work the earth, earth, which does not mean that the earth is ours to exploit. It means that we're called to work it, to work the land, to subdue the land, to take care of the land, to make the land fruitful, all of which involves work. That's work. God himself worked to create this beautiful world, and then he endows humans with the capacity and the responsibility for work, to work the land, to shape the land for God's purposes. Now keep in mind that this commission to work comes before the fall of mankind into sin, which means there, originally there were no negative connotations about work. It wasn't a punishment. According to the Bible, work is good, and engaging in work is one of the ways that humans bear the image of God. It's one of the things we're made to do, is to work. Okay, so Roman and Greek culture were wrong about work. Paul is offering a biblical corrective to that wrong thinking. But here's a theological question. Is God commanding us to work just for work's sake, such that any work is good work and the harder the better? Or if I could frame that question slightly differently, what is the difference between a human and a beaver when it comes to work? Right? Beavers, beavers have a reputation. Beavers are notoriously hard workers. So is there any difference in the way that beavers work and the way that humans are supposed to work? What, what separates us? What's, what sets us apart? I, I believe there is a difference between beaver work and human work. And the difference is that it matters to God how we work. And it matters to God why we work. The difference is that part of being made in the image of God means that we humans, we're not just machines, but we're morally self-conscious. We're able to make choices about our work. We're able to think about motives for work, motivations that may or may not honor God. In other words, we can engage in our work in a way that is totally self-focused and self-reliant, in which case... The focus of our work is ourselves and what we're doing. We're working for ourselves, for our glory, for our good. Or we can work in such a way that puts the focus on God. There's a way to do that. You know that. Recognizing that he is the one who called us to work. He is the one who created us to work. He is the one who empowers and equips us for work. And he is the one who is glorified in our work. As far as we know, that's not what motivates beavers to build dams. But it should be what motivates humans to build dams and highways and barns and to cook meals and everything else that we do that's work. And what I'm saying is that work, when done properly, glorifies God and not the human who's doing the work. Right? Roads that are straight. Cabinet doors that swing shut and close and are flush. Animals that are clean and healthy and well cared for. 
All of those things tell us something about the character of the worker, the person who did the work, but they should also tell us something about the glory of the one who created us for work. This is one of the reasons that work is good, is because good work is like an arrow, not just pointing to the one who did the work, but pointing to the one who created us by the work of his hands. Our work should point ultimately not to us, but to God. And when you work like this, in reliance upon God and for God's glory, then no matter what your work is, whether that's manual labor or teaching or sitting at a desk or parenting or cleaning or nursing or whatever, you feel the satisfaction that comes from doing good, hard work to the glory of God. You feel that. You know the peace that comes from working hard and then feeling tired after an honest day's work. And if you felt that, then you don't need me to tell you this morning that God has instilled work with dignity, that work is inherently good. You feel that when you do it right. And conversely, you know that people who spend their lives mainly in idleness or frivolous leisure or who work for their own glory to point to themselves and their own accomplishments, they're not nearly as happy and fulfilled in their work as those who work for the glory of God. You know the difference. That's exactly what Paul is telling the Thessalonians. So we work hard in order to point to God. We work hard in order to glorify God. That's one reason. Another reason why, we, why work is good, why we work hard, is work is the God-appointed means by which we provide for our needs, right? God set it up that way. Work was commanded before the fall, but listen to the way that work changes after the fall. Work is still good, but now work becomes hard. When Adam and Eve sinned, God imposed on the human race a condition of hardship. It continually reminds us that all is not right while there is sin in the world. The Lord said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Before the fall, humans lived in a garden where God was present with them and provided food for them on the trees of his garden, right? And all Adam and Eve had to do was wander through the garden and pick and eat. But when they chose to be self-reliant, when they chose to go their own way and to reject God's fatherly guidance and provision, God subjected them to the thing they chose, self-reliance. He said, all right, fine then, have it your way. From now on, if you're going to eat, you're going to need to toil and sweat. They're driven from the garden. They're driven from the immediate presence and provision of God, and they're driven out into a world that is now fallen. And the curse under which we live today is not that we have to work. That's not the curse. As we've already seen, work is good. But the curse is that now we struggle in our work. We struggle with weariness and with frustration. We, we have to deal with accidents and pain and drought and hardship in our work. And yet it's through this very toil that we keep ourselves alive. 
In other words, work itself is inherently good, but part of the consequence of our sin is that work got harder and work also became a necessary thing in order to keep us alive. And if I'm right about that, then the hardship of work that we experience in this life, in this fallen world, it's temporary. It's my belief that in heaven, we will still be engaged in meaningful and satisfying work. Work will not go away In heaven, we'll work to the glory of God, but all of the hardship, all of the burden, all of the discipline aspect of it will be removed. In the meantime, here on this earth, we toil by the sweat of our brow in order to provide for our needs. And the work is good, but it's also hard. However, since Jesus has now come into the world, we've experienced a partial lifting of that curse, even now, even in this life. Right? For example, Jesus came and defeated death. Right, Once and for all, he defeated death. And yet, in this fallen world, we still die. But the sting of death, the hopelessness of death, is removed because our sins are forgiven in Christ and he is risen and we have eternal life. Same thing with work. We still toil to provide for our needs in this life and it's still difficult. But Jesus said to his disciples... He said, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. For your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You seek first his kingdom. In other words, God doesn't want his children to be burdened with the frustration and futility and weariness of work in this life. But just as death will be a reality that we experience to the end of this age, so too will the provision of our needs through hard work be our experience in this age. The fact that Christ has come does not mean that we now return to Eden and we pick the fruit of someone else's garden. And that is apparently the mistake that was being made by some people in the church in Thessalonica. And that's why Paul writes to them, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that you will not be dependent on anybody else. And so we work to glorify God. We work to provide for our own needs. A third reason we work, an obvious one, but I'll mention it briefly, we work to provide for the needs of others. Our work should have an others-focused aspect as well. The the promise in the Bible that if you work, then you will eat, that's not an absolute promise. Because maybe a drought will strike. Or maybe thieves will steal what you saved through your hard work. Or maybe old age or disability or injury might make it hard or impossible for you to work and earn money. Or maybe war or some other form of oppression might render you unable to meet your own needs. There's all kinds of reasons why Even if we're willing to work, we might not be able to provide for our own needs. But God, in his mercy, instructs the able-bodied in prosperous times to supply the needs of those who are in the midst of hard times. Right? That's a message consistently throughout the Bible. In Acts 20, Paul himself refers to the way that he does this. He says, In all things I've shown you, That by so toiling, one must help the weak. By working, we position ourselves to be able to help the weak. He goes on, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it's more blessed to give than receive. So Paul says, work hard, 
earn money so that you'll have something to give to those who need it. He says the same thing in Ephesians 4. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work, doing honest work with his hands so that he might be able to give to those in need. So not only thieves stop stealing, but thieves start working so that you'll have stuff so that you can give it to those who need it. So we work to glorify God. We work to provide for our own needs. We work to provide for the needs of others. Uh, John Wesley has a quote along those lines. John Wesley once said, earn as much money as you possibly can, which sounds like a weird thing for him to have said, but he immediately followed that with, so that you can give away as much money as you possibly can. That was the principle that he promoted. Make as much as you can so that you can give away as much as you can. That's one more reason to work. And here's a final, here's a final reason that we work. Our work ethic is part of our witness to the world. In our work, we're usually working, we're engaged with the world, we're in the world, we're rubbing shoulders with people who think differently about the world, who, who, who don't believe in the God that we believe in. And if we do our work in reliance on God's power and with excellence and for his glory, if we do our work to provide not only for our own needs, but also to provide for the needs of others, we will stand out, we will be countercultural, and we will build bridges for the gospel. In our passage today, Paul exhorts the believers, you should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anybody. Right? That so that is saying, look, engage and work in this way because other people are watching and they're going to notice. Paul is making a connection between the way Christians do our work and the attitude that unbelievers have towards us and by extension towards God. In the same way that we should stand out because of our sexual ethics, we too should stand out because of our work ethic. We should be the hardest working ones on the job site. We should be working the hardest and we should have the best attitudes on the job site. And we should do our work with diligence and we should do our work with excellence. And when that exemplary work ethic gets noticed and people ask, hey, why do you work so hard? Or a coworker asks, hey, why are you so joyful about what we're doing? We're all doing the same thing, but you seem to be enjoying it. What is going on? Or they ask, why do you do your work with such excellence? No one's going to notice. No one's going to know. Why do you work so hard and so diligently to do your work with excellence? Well, when we hear those questions, when we stand out, and provoke questions, hopefully we respond not with the words, well, it's because I love my job. I hope you do love your job. I hope that's true for you. But hopefully when asked, we can respond, well, I work that way because I love my God. That's why I work the way I work, because I love my God. And hopefully we can then explain to them what is the connection between hard work and the love of God. God's design for this age, for, for this historical time when Christ has come once and the church has been established but Christ has not yet returned, God's plan is that his people will be scattered throughout the earth like salt in all legitimate vocations and workplaces, having his people planted there. As long as we are mentally and physically able, we should work, we should engage in work in reliance on God's power 
according to his pattern of excellence in work and for his glory. And in this way, God wills for us to provide for our own needs and beyond this, to provide for the needs of others who aren't able to provide for their own. And when we enter into our work in this spirit of humble trust in God and love for others, the truth of Christ will be on display and bridges will be built for the gospel. And when we approach work like this, our work will not feel like a burden. It won't be something that we grumble about and complain about or do grudgingly. We will do it as unto the Lord. And it won't be something that on the other side that we idolize or that we find our ultimate meaning in or that we spend too much time doing or that we find our identity in. But we will find that balance whereby we offer our work to God as an expression of our worship. It was Jesus himself who said, you know these words, come unto me all who work, right? All who labor. Come to me all who work and I will give you rest. Which doesn't mean that we'll never work again if we just come to Jesus. It means that there's a way to rest in Christ while working for God's glory, both. And that's what Paul was telling the Thessalonians to do, and that is what we should be doing as well. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for work, for good work, for hard work. Thank you that you have... um, loved us to such an extent that you have given us meaningful labor to engage in. And I pray that we would do, do the work you give us to do and that we would do it in the right way such that our labors point not to ourselves but to you and bring glory to your name, that our labors are fruitful and are able to provide for our own needs, not for our glory, but for yours. And that our labors are able to position us to be generous towards others, that we would be diligent not only in earning resources, but in looking for ways to use those resources to bless others. And I pray that the way that we engage in work would be a witness to the world, would cause people to ask, why do you work so hard? Why do you work so joyfully? Why do you work so faithfully and with such excellence? And that you would put words on our tongue to point not to ourselves and our work ethic or and our upbringing, but to point to you and your glory and to explain whose image it is that we bear. In your name, amen.